Welcome to Unexpected Points. It's Kevin Cole back at you for the Friday edition. I'm going to be reviewing the Rams-Seahawks Thursday night game. Great game uh, as far as the talent that was there. Not so great offensive performances in the first half. And really not so great game management stuff when it came to fourth downs, timeout usage, all that stuff I'm going to go over. I'm going to dig into the stats in particular, some stuff with Russell Wilson and his grading versus his play. Uh, I'm going to be humble here. I'm not going to be humble, I should say here. And I'm going to say that you're probably going to get some detailed information in this wrap-up of that game that you're not going to find anywhere else when it comes to the analytics behind certain things, when it comes to the grading, the specifics of the grading, and when it comes to what we should be looking for going forward for these two teams. So that's going to be the first part of the show. Spend some detail, dig into that since it was a good game and a high-profile game. And then I'm going to go through the rest of the Week 5 slate. I have four plays, which, again, these are for entertainment purposes only. You know, I don't know how good these plays are going to be vis-a-vis the, these are sides also, how good these sides are going to be vis-a-vis the lines that are out on Fridays or on Saturdays. But I think you could get a little bit of value on these. And I may have found some looking into some advanced metrics and some additional modeling that I'm doing with my game grades that I talked about last time, where I make a bunch of adjustments to come up with a more appropriate score than what the actual score was in the game. So that's all going to come to you. Uh, first, I want to Highlight PFF, say everyone, if you want to get more of this detailed information, whether it be the grading, whether it be uh, EPA-based information that I'm putting out with my quarterback rankings, whether it be all of our fantasy information, go to pff.com, get an Edge or Elite subscription. And also check out all the other PFF podcasts. Uh, In particular, I want to highlight today the Richard Sherman podcast. If anyone's been listening to that, great insight from one of the, you know, not only best players, Hall of Fame caliber player, uh, but you get some insight into everything that's going on with him. And now going over to the uh, to the Bucks, everything that's going on with other people that he brings on the show. He had Vaughn Miller on the show recently. So go and check that out. Uh, it's really high, high quality program and high quality insight that you're getting from that show. All right, let's get into the review of Rams Seahawks. So this was a two and a half. The Rams were a two and a half point favorite in this game. They end up winning by nine points. So they end up covering there. It was a weird tale of two halves, I would say, in this game. Uh, the first half t- uh, teams had a lot of difficulty scoring. If you look at here, I think it was the first 10. No, I'm sorry. The first eight possessions all ended in a turnover, a punt, or a turnover on downs before we finally started to get some scoring. And then the second half, the Rams defense really came out firing. They scored a touchdown on their first three possessions. And then it was, you know, kind of sayonara there, especially after the Russell Wilson injury uh, in the second half. Although Geno Smith, you know, Geno truthers of which I may or may not have been one in fantasy football many years ago, Geno truthers got a little taste of some, Uh, Geno goodness on that first drive, at least. So so that was good for them. All right, I'm going to start with some of the game management stuff. That's what you come to me for. That's what you come to the analytics and other things. And I think this was a clear distillation of two decision makers here who are trying to do the mental analytics would combine with gut, gut feeling rather than 
looking at the numbers and getting a real informed basis here. And I'm going to say, you know, when when we're making decisions, it's not like we don't have our own analytics. We don't have our own mental models that we're using. It's just normally they're not going to be as well calibrated. You're not going to get as good of information, as good as nuanced, particular context driven information as you're going to get from an actual model. And these fourth down decisions, people may overplay some of their importance, but it's really a clear way to look through the benefits you can get. And I think no two decisions illustrate this more than the decisions that the Seahawks made on two different fourth downs uh, early in the game. These were both first downs, uh, fourth downs that happened in the first quarter, right? The score was the same. It was both 0-0, so everything was the same there. And I think you can pretty easily compare Pete Carroll's mental model and where the mistakes are there versus where you would have in an actual analytical model. So let me just bring over the two different decisions. The first was on the first drive of the game. The Seahawks were fourth and three at the Rams 43 yard line. They decide to punt in that circumstance. The second fourth and two, so shorter distance uh, from the Rams 29 yard line, they decide to go for it. They don't end up getting it at that point. So I think it's pretty clear if you look at these two decisions and if you decide that there's some sort of like systematic decision making going on here, which you're going to hope for, right? Like there's a process here. Let's hope. Uh, Even if it's a mental process, there there are guidelines, there are um, heuristics that are that are being used here. I think you can pretty easily point to how those are faulty because you don't have the best information, right? Analytics is information, information helps you make better decisions, right? The poor information that Carol, I believe, is getting from his mental model comes down to not being able to properly assess what field position means in this circumstance. Now, there are different components, right, to these fourth down decisions. Your chance of conversion, of course, is going to be one of it. It's going to be highly correlated to the distance that you need here. So I think Pete Carroll understands that. I think everyone understands that a fourth and two is going to be easier to convert than a fourth and three. So that's obviously a driver in his decision when he's deciding to do this. And it is a logical driver in this decision. Now, I think the problem with Carroll's decision here is I think he also may be of the belief that the closer you are to the end zone, the more you should go for it the more likely it is you should go for it. And the problem, and this is something I've discussed on prior episodes, is that's not the case. It's not a linear thing. Um, It's not even a one-way thing when when you're counting down the yards towards the end zone, increasing your probability to go for it. In this particular circumstance, a fourth and three from the 43-yard line is a stronger signal to go for it than a fourth and two from the 29-yard line. Why is that? Is the opportunity cost. And this is something that we're not thinking about enough. Now, you're more likely if you convert to, to eventually score a touchdown from the 29-yard line than you are from the 43-yard line. Like, that's pretty obvious, right? You're closer to the end zone. And I think that's probably mentally the intuitive thing to think. So that's true. You're gaining more on your touchdown probability. The thing is, you're not gaining nearly as much on your field goal probability. Okay, and that's what's not being assessed here. When you have the ball on the 29 yard line, uh, let's say you're going to add the typical seven, eight yards to the kick. You know, you're going to be kicking from the 37 yard line. Let's say it's a 47 yard field goal, not a short field goal. 
Okay. Definitely not a short field goal, but a 47 yard field goal in the NFL is a very makeable field goal. That's something that's about a 75% chance of going in. It's really only when we get over 50 yards, unless we're talking about poor conditions, it's really only when we get over 50 yards that it becomes difficult to make a field goal. So what you're giving up on this play by deciding to go for it versus kicking your opportunity cost here is three out of every four times you're going to make that field goal and you're going to get that three points. So we're talking about two points and change that you have there as your opportunity cost. Now on the other side, right? When you are at the 43 yard line, you go back seven, eight yards. We're talking about a 60 something yard kick, 0% chance, basically. I mean, some kickers obviously can do it, but we're talking about something that will not be attempted in the vast majority of circumstances, unless it's a kick to win the game and you don't have the time to get into the end zone, right? So. Your opportunity cost from a field goal perspective on that 43 line yard line is zero, right? And your opportunity cost is really the punt in this circumstance. So the punt, if you look at this punt, you're punting from your opponent's 43 yard line. I mean, ever so often that's going to go into the end zone. It's going to be taken out to the 20. You're only going to get 23 net yards. Sometimes you can get it closer on here. On here, Michael Dixon ended up getting a 31 yard punt. So it got the ball down near the 10 yard line, but still, a 31-yard punt, 31 yards in field position against a high-powered offense is not much of an opportunity cost. It's a much lower opportunity cost than passing up the field goal when you're closer in. So that's that's really the difference there. Even though it's a lower chance of conversion, it's more like a 50% conversion on fourth and three versus uh, closer to a 60% conversion in our numbers for a high-powered offense like the, like the, the Seahawks uh, on fourth and two, what, what you're not getting is the opportunity cost. That's why it's you should be more likely to go for it if you're 40 yards away from the end zone. And then once you get into that 30, 20-yard range, your actual uh, willingness to go for it based upon distance goes down. And then as you get closer to the end zone, where you're not, where you're, you're getting so much closer to actually getting the touchdown, that that becomes much more of a bigger factor than your opera, then your, your likelihood of, and your win probability gain of going for it goes way up. So again, Carol did not have this properly calibrated because these are two decisions, same quarter, same score, same everything, except for one was at the 43, one was at the 29. He's improperly weighting the fact that the 43 in and of itself, um, in absence of other in a vacuum, the 43 is a stronger go for it signal for an offense than the 29 is. And it's unintuitive, but if you're modeling these things out, you would know that. So that's that's a big one there. Now, the other fourth down decisions, uh, the worst decision of the night, I would say, when it came to fourth downs, was the fact that the Rams did not go for it on fourth and two right before the end of the half. There was a minute and 12 seconds left from the 13-yard line. They had already gone for it on fourth and one from the Seattle 23, which is also a very big go for it. And they picked it up. And one of the elements that may not be playing enough in this decision, I'm not quite sure what McVeigh was thinking. I think there was a lot of conservatism or risk aversion as part of this decision. They were down seven points. They knew that Seattle, I think, was going to get the ball to start the second half. So they knew that um, they didn't want to go in with zero points. Now, the problem is here, it's not only that you're close right? We're getting close to the end zone. So again, we're becoming more and more of a go for it situation. It's not only that you're close, but built into the win probability gain. And this is huge. This was a six 
seven pointer in win probability that, for going for it here, which is one of the highest you're going to see. And Sean McVay did not choose this. The thing that's not being factored in, in this decision, maybe in McVay's mind, is the fact there's one minute and 12 seconds left, right? So if you kick the field goal, you're giving Russell Wilson the ball back with two timeouts. And that's plenty of time to get into field goal range and erase your field goal, or maybe even get a touchdown and giving him more time. Whereas if you pick up that first down, right? If you if you convert the the fourth and two in that situation, you're also going to practically eliminate the chance for the Seahawks to get points before the end of the half because you're going to be able to wind that clock down. So it's either you're going to get the touchdown, you're going to get the field goal, and there's going to be so so little time left, probably. Now, you could throw a touchdown on the next play, and that doesn't count, but if you pick it up, you're probably thinking, you know what, we're going to run uh, at least once here to continue to, to grind that clock out. So that's the advantage that was built into going for it there that McVay may not have been thinking about because you know he went for it earlier in the drive where it was like a 7.5% win probability gain. And then this one where it's a 7% win, win probability gain, he did not do it. So I think it was a combination of risk aversion and not understanding the dynamics of the clock because remember, Seattle got the ball back, right? They drove down the field. They had a touchdown that was nullified by a holding call. So they actually, you know, really could have scored a touchdown. Again, they would have put up seven points where you only put up three. And by putting up three, you gave them time to get those seven points. And then they ended up missing a very makeable 35-yard kick. And that's a kick that's going to go in 95% of the time under normal circumstances. And it did not go in. So the the Rams and McVay, very, very, that was the worst decision, though, of the game. And Again, not understanding the clock management side of it and probably just general conservatism is what played into that decision. Now, let's talk about some of the bigger numbers Bigger numbers from the game. Uh, I think Russell Wilson and his passing grade is probably the one grade I'm going to want to dig through here and really give some context on. And this is going to highlight how Russ is you know, maybe hacked the PFF grading system a bit here. Remember, I'm giving you guys context. I've had some people say that um, maybe I'm being critical of the grades. I don't think I'm being critical. I think I'm making sure that everyone can interpret these properly. And I also had this saying before, and it's going to come in strongly into this analysis that we're, that PFF is grading throws, right? But it's not the only thing that's being graded. I don't want that to be said. Some people have misinterpreted saying the only thing I'm saying it's a bigger part of the grade than it is part of EPA or an efficiency metric, or any other sort of quarterback rating method, whether it's QBR, whether it's EPA per play, whether it's passer rating even, uh, we're grading throws more than anything. And no one is better at making difficult throws than Russell Wilson. And that's why in this game, he had a 91.2 passing grade, very, very high passing grade. He had five big time throws in this game, okay? That is a ton of big time throws. Remember, he only made 20 throws, period. He only passed the ball 20 times. He only had 12 completions. So five of his 12 completions, almost half of his completions, 42% of his completions, we were rating as a big-time throw. And just to give context for, you know, and normally, like Kyler Murray has the highest big-time throw rate of anyone so far this season. It's at 9%, and that's 9% of pass attempts, right? 9%. Russ in this game was at 25%. So that's how huge it is. That's what's driving that grade forward. But the problem is he's really, really good at making difficult throws that are somewhat higher value, 
what he's been bad at historically, and you want to blame it on the system, you want to blame it on Russell Wilson, you want to blame it on the receivers, you want to blame it on whatever you want to blame it on. I think some of the blame definitely belongs on Russell Wilson for this, though, is he's not good at either taking or making less difficult but still valuable throws, right? So we're like, it's not happening. So it's tough to give someone a negative grade for not doing something that is easy and instead making a harder throw, right? But he's clearly not doing that. This has been happening over and over again. His grades continue on an annual basis to outpace his EPA per drop back in particular, but even his EPA per play when you're giving him some juice from the running game. And a good way to think about this is, you know, he has this outstanding 91.2 grade, his yards per attempt, 8.3, which is okay, which is good. But Matthew Stafford was up in the nines in this game and we're grading him down in the seventies, right? So he's just not getting the efficiency out of this grade. His EPA per dropback in this game was 0.08 EPA per dropback. That is basically a 50th percentile type of outcome, if not a little bit worse. So again, 90 something grade, really a 50th percentile outcome when we talk about the practical, actual, real implication on how his play affected the game. Now, another part of this was the interception where it was tipped by Jalen Ramsey. We did not rate that as a turnover worthy play. I think it fell somewhere in between. I don't think it was a fully a turnover worthy play, but I also don't think the ball placement was great. And the receiver was very open. It was a dangerous throw in that sort of way, but we did not rate that as a turnover worthy play, which helped keep Russ's uh, grade higher, which I think was probably appropriate not to call it a turnover worthy play because it was too much of a borderline there, but that's something to keep in mind there. And another thing when it comes to Russ, and I've discussed this before when it comes to sacks. So we're not rating the sacks negatively. He took only two sacks, but these were bad sacks. Okay. It was combined on those two sacks. So not getting, you know, just the loss of down and the sacks on those plays and the yardage loss on those plays was a negative 4.5 EPA. His interception, the interception that, that Jalen Ramsey tipped and then was, was intercepted, that was only a negative three. So those two sacks were worse than the interception. These are very, very negative plays that Russell Wilson continues to do when it comes to taking sacks. He's always got one of the highest sack rates in the NFL. So, you know, he's just never going, the way he's kind of like, his, his passing grade, because he makes these high level throws, is always going to be a little bit higher than what his production is. And again, other advanced metrics, and this is, you know, arguments I've had with Ben Baldwin and others, when we talk about the value of completion percentage over expected, if we take that number from his system, Russ is always near the top on that, but yet he's also a little bit more middling when it comes to EPA per play. Well, middling is, is maybe I shouldn't say middling, but he's normally number one when it comes to completion percentage over expected. And then maybe more like top 10 when it comes to EPA per play. Again, if you look at the numbers so far this year for Russ, he's third in completion percentage over expected above 10% over expectation. I have, I have more confidence that he'll outlast Kyler and Patrick Mahomes, who's surprisingly above him at this point, And he will end up being number one at the end of the season. Like he normally is. Um, which puts him in this index that Ben has where it combines CPOE and, and EPA per play, it makes him seventh in this index, right? Uh, because of this benefit he gets from CPOE. The problem is when you look at his EPA per play, 
and you go down this list of all these quarterbacks who are high on the on the index of combining completion percentage over expectation and EPA per play, Russ is not higher on EPA per play until we get all the way down to 21st. He's not higher than anyone until we get down to Baker Mayfield on this. So this continues to be this disconnect. And I think with Russ, they need to figure out a way on that offense to get easier plays. Many people point to the fact that he ignores the middle of the field. And is it a height issue? Is it a risk conservatism issue? Is it a system issue? I'm not sure, but I think that's a continuing problem that they have where no one's better in the business at dropping the ball in the bucket, hitting those deep plays down the sideline, but you don't want to have to derive your production in the most difficult way possible. And also when it comes to third down convergence, he's typically not very good at third down convergence, or at least average at best. Again, figure out easier ways to get the ball over the middle of the field to make those conversions rather than having to make the most difficult possible throw for those conversions. Uh, The other big story coming out of this game, Jamal Adams, he got, uh, I wouldn't say he got burnt by Deshaun, Deshaun Jackson, but there was that long pass to Deshaun Jackson where he turned and ran and he just obviously does not have the greatest ball tracking spatial awareness when it comes to pass coverage. He had a 42.1 coverage grade here, which was 20 points lower than any other Seahawks defender. He had a 53 overall grade on the season so far. And the best thing that he's done is he has a 72 grade as a pass rusher. Everything else is, is low in the, in the fifties or forties. And this is a player, you know, huge contract safety, biggest, the highest paid safety in the NFL type of player. It is two first round draft picks given up for him. This is a play where I think we could have obviously seen that this is going to be negative. So I don't want to pile on too much on the fact that he's not playing well, because him not playing well was not really the argument against this trade in the first place. The argument against the trade in the first place is you don't pay multiple first round picks for, especially for a non-premium position, which safety is debatable, um, especially to safety who's not great in coverage and then go and pay someone a high contract. So the Jamal Adams experiment, not going so well. The Seahawks defense uh, is the fifth worst in the league when I look at our our adjustment that we do for drop back defense. Um, Just not good, not good at all. Seahawks got a little bit lucky last week, not so lucky this week. So that's something to to think about a bit. And one last thing I want to talk about when it comes to McVay, again, fake sharp McVay. I need him. He's going to lose them some games this year even though they won this game. Um, I mentioned earlier not going for it. We had the huge win probability. I also think at the end of the game, really two circumstances, but in particular one circumstance where they had the ball and then they ended up kicking it away to Gino up by six and then Gino throws the interception. But when they had the ball there, you know, they ran it on first down, picked up 12 yards, got a, got another first down. Um, this before the two minute warning, I believe. And then they ran it again, barely picked up any yards. And on that second down, that is when you need to pass the ball. You need a conversion here. Okay. They're in second and long and they decided we're going to run it again. And then on third down, when everyone knows we're passing here, I think it was third and eight or third and nine, everyone on the planet knows that we now have to pass to convert here. Or if we are going to run it, it's going to be really difficult to sneak it by and get the first down. Then they decide to pass it. Um, uh, you know, Robert Woods was open. It was somewhat unlucky if the pass was batted down by Dunlop, but still take that second down opportunity to play action pass to, because if you take a sack there, like, let's say you take a sack on a play action pass, whatever, then you're just running out the clock. Anyway, you're losing a tiny bit of field position on the punt. But if you get that conversion, the game is not over, but it's very, very close to over. 
So I don't like waiting until third down. He's hoping after getting that first down conversion right before that, after getting that 12-yard run and first down, he's kind of just hoping we're going to bust another run. And just rolling the dice and assuming you're going to get this improbable outcome of these big runs when everyone knows you're going to run the ball uh, multiple times on one drive because it just happened, not a smart statistical play. Um, And then also on the next drive where they kicked the field goal to go up by nine, you know, that was a 47-yard field goal. They could have got a little bit closer on that one. Again, I think they could have passed it, given up some clock to up the conversion chance and just end the game right there. Instead, you know, they ran the ball three times and they kicked a 47-yard field goal, which lucky for them that went in. That was only a 75% type of chance to make that field goal. So there was a 25% chance you're going to give that away, give the ball to the Seahawks with not that much time left. I think there were 30 seconds left, but still 30 seconds left to give them the ball on the 37-yard line down by six. So big, you know, big mistakes in game management across the board here. Um, I hope that context on Russell Wilson's grading was helpful. I think both of these teams are good teams, but the Seahawks, clearly they're not getting some of the luck that we've seen in previous years. In previous years, they used to always show up on these teams that are likely to regress because of the, the luck factor there. It came through for them last week, not so much this week. And let's hit another sponsor before we get into all of the weekend's action. And my favorite play is from this weekend. Uh, and this is an appropriate time to talk about that. DraftKings. DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, has a week five offer every football fan should jump on. New customers can bet just $1 on any NFL game and win $100 in free bets if either team scores a point. The last 0-0 tie in an NFL game was 1943, so I would say that this is a no-brainer. If the sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prices all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contest. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF. Throw down $1 on any NFL game and win $100 in free bets. If either team scores a point, that's a promo code PFF this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wagered. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem. Call 1-800-GAMBLER. All right, let's get into the week. So we have a special London game, early, early West Coasters. You're finally getting the revenge of the East Coasters here. Um, We have to stay up for all of these games, at least dads like myself who have to take their kids into school at, uh, you know, 730 in the morning are getting our revenge here with this 930 East Coast start for uh, 630 start on the West Coast for the Falcons and the Jets. So the Falcons are a three-point favorite in this one. Again, it's a neutral field. No Calvin Ridley or Russell Gage. Uh, maybe Kyle Pitts will actually get something going in this game. Pitts so far this season is a 16% target share on the year. That's 11th among tight ends. He was a guy who was being drafted probably fifth, fourth, 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 I would say, uh, as far as his ADP to start the season, only being 11th in target share, not so hot. He's behind guys like Dalton Schultz and Tyler Conklin, so he's probably going to be more involved in this game. Uh, The Jets' defense is probably the underplayed story of the season when it comes to the Jets because they have been not horrible. In fact, they've been 
they've been pretty good. Not a single team has ended with over a 50th percentile in EPA per play against them. So they've held teams down in that regard. Now, some of that is because of the, the shift, right? The fact that teams have been killing them a lot of the time. So they're running the ball a lot, which drives down their EPA per play because it's a less valuable activity. But really, it was only Teddy Bridgewater who had like a good passing performance against them. And the other games, they've done pretty well there. And as we saw, Ryan Tannehill had his struggles last week without his top receivers. So we'll see that again, Matt Ryan without his top receivers this week. Now, the Jets are only 30th in their pressure rate, but they're 14th in fast pressure. So if they can get pressure on Matt Ryan, it's going to be very, very important. Uh, Wilson is kind of holding the ball a little bit too long. It's around three seconds so far this season, but the Falcons have the lowest pressure rate in the NFL. So Wilson should have time. The thing about Wilson, and I discussed this a little bit last week, what he's doing is he's making plays out of structure, but not really making plays in structure. So the fact that they're not getting pressure on him is important in not taking sacks, maybe not forcing throws and interceptions. But it's a little bit harder in that if he's sitting in the pocket where he hasn't been able to display the ability to make those pocket passes so far. Um, If you look at him on the season, so the EPA that he's generated on passes that are at least 15 air yards or further, right? Um, He's generating a ton of EPA on those, right? He is getting nine EPA on those throws so far where he's only generated 12 EPA throwing the ball period. And that's, you know, I'm netting out interceptions. I'm not counting interceptions. I'm not counting sacks. So 12 EPA total, nine of that has been on these 15 plus air yard throws. So Wilson's not doing the little things, but is making some spectacular plays sometimes down the field. And for him, there's a smaller differential between his EPA with and without pressure than almost anyone else in the league. And he's not getting much of a boost from play action so far. So again, within structure, clean pocket passing, not good. Uh, play action passing, not good. Out of structure, good, not great, right? But he's really been bad at the in-structure stuff so far. Um, it's it's funny that he is, he's only at 18% of his throws, Um have been these longer throws, but he's, he's, he's getting so much EPA from them. That really shows you how he's playing here. I have this right around a three points, according to uh, my game grades and modeling on this. So we're going to, we're going to pass on this one, but it should be an interesting game to watch for those who can, who can wake up early enough. Okay. Next on the early schedule, green Bay and Cincinnati. Uh, Massive differences this year and how Rogers and burrow have performed under pressure. Um, But they both keep pressure low. Rodgers has been pretty bad uh, under pressure. And actually, they, they both have been pretty bad under pressure, but both of them have kept their pressure rates low. Now, the thing is, they're taking a lot of sacks under pressure. They're both taking about a sack on about a quarter of their pressure dropbacks. And that's why their pressure numbers, the way that I calculate it, which is I include sacks in there, are so bad. Is their, their sack rates are a little bit higher. I mean, Burrow higher than, than Rodgers, but they just haven't dealt well with that. Um, neither one of these teams are generating a ton of pressure so far on defense. Uh, Green Bay is 32nd in the league on how much pressure that they're generating. And if you look at Burrow, you know, he took 10 sacks in the first two games of the season, and then he's only taken two sacks in the last two. So if Burrow has time, this offense looks like it's starting to come together a bit. T Higgins is probably back for this game. So I think there are reasons to think that this is re- that it's understandable. It's only a three point Green Bay uh, the spread is only three points towards Green Bay in this game, despite the fact that you know the Packers are a contender for the NFC Championship. And if you look at this 
the one thing that will be another thing to track, and I have this around three points, so we're not going to play this either way. But the one thing I think is going to be interesting to track is how Cincinnati operates their passing game. I think they got a little spooked by those sacks in the first couple of games. And then we saw against Jacksonville, who wasn't able to generate pressure. And again, Green Bay has not been able to generate fast pressure so far this year that they turned back towards having a more normalized pass rate versus expectation. They were basically equal to pass rate versus expectation last week. They were 5.9% under it uh, on the season. If you look at the earlier games, it was, you know, they had some games where they were 10% under, 8% under. And these are games that were close. These are not games that they were blowing people out, that they were really passing under expectation. So they'll be interesting from the Cincinnati offense, whether they decide to let Burrow open it up a little bit more, continue to press that advantage because that passing attack, and we've seen Jamar Chase, we've seen Tyler Boyd, and now T. Higgins back in the mix, and even CJ Ozama playing there. It's looking quite, quite powerful. Let's just get the the volume up a little bit there and let them play in that regard because it's going to be tough to stop Green Bay on the other side. Maybe a sneaky over type of type of game here. I'm not going to play the, the totals, but that's something to look at. Um, if you look at the total for this game, it is. Uh, sorry for the delay here. It is 51. So actually, it's a pretty high total, but it's coming to something that even could go over beyond that. All right, next game. And this is a game I do have a play on that nobody is going to be excited about. And that is the Patriots at the Texans. Patriots are a nine-point favorite. So I have this more like a six-point game, maybe six and a half, seven points at most, leaning towards the Patriots. So I'm going to make this an official play. Let me write it down so I can make sure that I'm correct here. An official play of the Texans plus nine, and hopefully that's still available uh, wherever you guys are looking. I made these notes yesterday. So Texans plus nine, we're obviously over a bunch of key numbers. We're not over 10, but we're over or at a bunch of key numbers getting up to nine here. Uh, You know, Mac Jones is impressive against a tougher defense. I think that's why this is such a high number. And, you know, let's face it, Davis Mills, he's rewriting the record book for inefficiency. He has the lowest PFF passing grade, the lowest... EPA per play on the season. He's tied for the worst rate of negatively graded throws. He has the second lowest rate of positively graded throws. Uh, Big Ben, shout out to Big Ben, is actually the only person lower on the, than that on high volume. And he has the most, the highest rate of turnover worthy plays. So Mills, pretty much across the board, has been the worst. Now, he wasn't as awful against the Panthers as he was against the Bills. So I'm just going to throw that game in the garbage, throw it in the garbage, and we're going to start over. But what may have been ignored about that game against the Bills is the fact that the Bills offense didn't look so hot. Okay. And it wasn't just um, Josh Allen turnovers, but they have been okay this entire season. Right. Um, And that should be interesting against a Patriots team that wants to grind it out and wants to run the ball. That's what they've been doing this season. That's what they're probably going to continue to do. They didn't do that against the Buccaneers because no one does that against the Bucs, right? But I think generally that's what they want to do this season. So if you look at the the Patriots offense, you know, the run offense is 24th in EPA per play, not so hot. Um, the run defense for Houston hasn't been great. It's 28th. But again, you've been put in these bad situations. Their drop back defense, though, has been 21st in the NFL. So not so bad at all. Uh, even though they faced Lawrence, who they got a bunch of turnovers from, so that is part of it. 
they face Baker Mayfield, they face Sam Darnold, and then they face Josh Allen. So not, you know, murderers row, but a pretty decent subset of, of quarterbacks there. So for that reason, that they can be able to keep this a little bit closer. And nine points is just a ton. It is a ton on the road. Um, you know, you have uh, Patriots coming off of that Sunday night game. It's really only the Panthers offense who took it to the Texans so far this year. And I don't know, you know, the Panthers offense isn't the most impressive in the NFL, but I think Sam Darnold and that offense has been playing a lot better than what we've seen from, from Mac Jones so far this year. So for all of those reasons, I'm going to lean, and that's going to be one of my actual picks here, is the Texans plus nine. Uh, just too many points on the road for a team for New England whose defense has not been as good as you would have hoped, and their offense, while looking functional compared to other offenses for rookie quarterbacks, not great for sure, and um, not providing explosive plays, which they're going to need to cover this nine-point uh, line. All right, next game. Uh, Titans at Jaguars. Titans are a four and a half point favorite. It looks like AJ Brown is out. I haven't checked so far today, but I know Julio is questionable and maybe he'll play or not. We saw them struggle uh, dropping back against the Jets without those guys. Uh, It's kind of a weird game last week. Jeremy McNichols ended up being the highest targeted player. Um, They had a decent target rate for Josh Reynolds there. And Nick Westbrook Akine, I believe is how you say that. I, I'm knowing going to mess that up. Um, on the other side of the ball, 30% target rate for LaVisca last week with uh, Chark out. I think Chark's going to be out again this week. So uh, LaVisca, we'll see if he continues to, to play going forward. I think that was a huge positive for the Jaguars. Uh, I had the Jaguars as a play against the Cincinnati. They outperformed actually Cincinnati according to my game grades last week, even though they lost the game. So both teams have been much more effective running the ball than passing. And it's mostly due to the negatives that they've taken in their drop back passing games. It's not that they've been poor at passing the ball, making positive plays. They've just made way, way too many negative plays. Um, So if you look at their success rate versus their EPA per drop back, so their success rate on drop backs versus EPA per drop back, success rate being stickier because it takes out the outlier plays in either direction. So for Jacksonville, their success rate is 22nd, but their EPA per drop back is 30th. And it's because of the interceptions. They had seven interceptions so far for Lawrence, uh, second to Zach Wilson. He's lost 35 EPA in his interceptions. Again, second to only Zach Wilson. Uh, But he had no interceptions last week, and that was a big reason why they were able to hang in that game. And I think we're going to see going forward better protection of the ball. I mean, you can't get much worse, but better protection of the ball going forward. Um, for him, you know, it was the first, not only did he have no interceptions last week, but it was the first game where he didn't have at least two interceptions, uh, for Tannehill, it's not interceptions as much, although he's taken some, some, he's thrown some interceptions. It's sacks negative 42 EPA on sacks worst in the NFL leads the NFL with 17 sacks. He took seven sacks. I think maybe it was six, six or seven sacks last week. He has three lost fumbles on these sacks who have been massively negative. So that's what's really driven his numbers down a ton as far as the EPA per play on, on dropbacks, right? Because if we look again at Tennessee, their numbers, their dropback success rate is 11th in the NFL. They're close to a top 10 offense when you look at just how often they're generating EPA on a, on a per play basis, like how often, yes or no. But and their EPA per drop back is 23rd. Okay. 
Um, so they should get a lot closer to that. So I think that offense can be able to turn around a bit. Obviously, they're going to need to get some playmakers in there to do that. Uh, their run EPA rank is kind of the flip, the opposite. They're 24th in success rate running the ball, not so high of a success rate, but they're 11th in EPA because they're getting these large, long runs from Derrick Henry. Uh, the Jacksonville is also like a top 10 rushing team so far this, this week. And what I want to also see, see from Lawrence, number one, avoiding the turnovers. Number two, how they use him in the running game. I was su- pleasantly surprised that last week, it was his best game. He had lower volume passing the ball. They ran the ball a lot, but he was involved in the running game. So it wasn't like they just weren't using them. He it was key to opening up, I think, other per- people running the ball and Lawrence himself being able to generate value. He had six design runs last week. He only had three the previous three weeks, um, but those were all in week three also. So if you look at his nine design runs in the last two weeks, zero in the, in the first two weeks. They need to continue doing that. Now, he failed on a fourth and goal from the one, which really lowered his EPA. It made it basically flat on the game, running the ball. But he did convert two third and twos and a third and three. He had a, uh, he had a scramble that picked up. Um, he had a couple of scrambles. One of them picked up a second and 10. So there were a lot of positive plays there. If you think about that, he picked up four first downs, either through scramble or running the ball. That's a lot. And we want that to continue going forward. It's going to be key for their advantage to sustain that. So I think these are two offenses that are both underrated offenses, but four and a half, you know, it's a little bit too much for me to say that I'm going to like Tennessee to bounce back here, despite the fact that they have a top success rate passing game, because I think Jacksonville is also on the rise here. So these are two teams I think could be a little bit undervalued, but because they're both playing each other, I have this around four points. So I'm not going to touch it in either direction. Okay, Detroit, Minnesota. The Lions are nine and a half point underdogs in Minnesota. Uh, the line has been moving further and further towards the Vikings. And we're talking about the Detroit injuries here. The latest thing that we're hearing is that Penny Sewell, they're planning on not having him. We'll see if they have him or not. Uh, Romeo Aquara, Achilles tear out for the season. They've, you know, they haven't had Frank Ragnow for a while now in that offensive line. TJ Hawkinson is missing practice and not playing, but Trey Flowers did return to practice. So in some ways, they're in a little bit better of a situation defensively than they were against the Bears where Flowers didn't play and Aquara tore his Achilles and they couldn't get any pressure on Justin Fields. That's why Justin Fields was able to play so well in that game. Um, for on the Minnesota side of the ball, you know, Dalvin Cook is hampered, but whatever, you know, Alexander Madison He's 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 going to give you a lot of what Dalvin Cook would give you whenever you're, whenever you're giving him the ball. But they couldn't run the ball well against the uh, the Browns last week, so that was a problem for them getting that offensive going generally. So Minnesota has been good on offense, but they've been highly dependent on lower on longer plays, and they just didn't get those long plays last year last week. Cousins is fourth in EPA in the NFL and passes with over 15 air yards. He has almost 30 EPA. So he's fourth in EPA and that's 30 out of the 40 EPA that he has generated passing the ball. So three quarters of his EPA that he's generated has been on these long passes, which that's not really sustainable. Um, But he also has the second lowest rate of making like the second lowest percentage of his passes have been over 15 yards. So the second lowest percentage of doing something, but the third highest value that you've gotten out of it. So just huge, huge on a per play basis, what he's been able to do on those longer passes where when it works, it really works when it doesn't work and he's not able to do it. Like he wasn't able to do it against the Browns. The offense ends up stalling out without the running game there to back them up. So I think that's going to be key for Detroit. You know, I think Detroit is playing hard, right? 
And my number on this without, you know, I know there's gonna be a lot of pessimism with the offensive line uh, injuries and the, and the defense injuries, things that have gone with Detroit without those injuries. I have this more like a five ish sort of advantage for Minnesota. Now, maybe put in some home field advantage, which has looked kind of non-existent this year. So maybe you can take it up to six, but at nine and a half, not only are you getting all the way up to nine, but getting that half point again, a plays that no one wants to make. I'm going to add the Detroit lions, my man, uh, motor city, Dan Campbell, MCDC, who's actually been surprisingly good about going for it on fourth down. So props to you, uh, Dan Campbell there. Maybe I'll have to uncancel you some, sometime down the road. I'm going to take them at nine and a half here. They're my second play here. Again, you got to kind of plug your nose and, and bet this one. Nobody wants to take it. And often you're going to find value on sometimes on plays that no one wants to make. Okay. Next game, uh, Broncos at Steelers. The Steelers are a one point favorite. Last time I saw Teddy Bridgewater, is he going to play or not? That might flip over to the Broncos. If they decide he's going to play drew Locke was God awful. Of course, last week is chase Claypool going to play. We'll see. Not sure it's a huge driver for the performance there since they did have Claypool a couple of weeks ago against the Bengals and they targeted him a billion times and he ended up with 50 yards or something like that. So not great. Uh, you know, Teddy just really could not get anything going against the Ravens after someone who had such good performances in weeks one through three. Um, I'll cut him some slack because Albert O dropped a very long, maybe even potential touchdown uh, on a long pass down the sideline. Although I don't want to be like those announcers, you know, these announcers where if a, if a guy's open and he dropped the ball or something happened and where he could have caught the ball and he had another 40 yards to go, but he's, but he's somewhat open. The announcers are like, Oh, that would have been a touchdown. You know, a lot of times guys get caught from behind other defenders come in there. Other things happen. I, that always annoys me. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that with Alberto and say that I definitely would have been a touchdown, but it would have been a big play. And he didn't play that much after that, but only four yards per attempt. It was just nothing down the field, really awful game for Bridgewater here. So I think he can bounce back. We'll see if maybe not having KJ Hamler there in addition to Jerry Judy is really the problem with that offense. But I thought Noah Fant was getting open a decent amount. And like I mentioned, Albert O, they have those other options. So I think be okay there. Their defense still has great numbers, great pressure numbers. But the reason that I wouldn't lean and say I'd actually bet on the Broncos in this game is because Ben does neutralize that pressure with how quickly he gets the ball out. He gets the ball out faster than anyone else in the NFL at 2.2 seconds. So even though they take pressure there, he's able to avoid, I mean, though they, even though the offensive line is not good, he's able to avoid a lot of pressure. They have some of the lowest pressure rates in the NFL because Ben gets rid of the ball so, so quickly. Again, this is one that I have Pittsburgh as being favored on, but not quite enough to look at it on, on either direction. So at minus one, we're going to avoid this one. Okay, Miami versus Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay is a 10-point favorite. That's a lot of points against a team when it comes to the Dolphins that had playoff aspirations. So you can look at that and say, well, the Dolphins should be a good play. If you're going to play the, you know, the Lions and the Texans at fewer points than that, why not play the Dolphins? Well, the problem is, and I think the everyone's kind of hip to this now, is Jacoby Brissett stinks, okay? Um, the implied total is only 19 in this game for him against a secondary that is missing Jamel Dean, Carlton Davis, Antonio Winfield Jr., uh, Gronk is doubtful. So all these guys are out, and especially in the secondary, all those guys out. You're, you're trotting out Richard Sherman off of the street last week. And we're still 
figuring that the Dolphins can't get 20 points on the board in this game. They're going to be forced to pass the ball, though. Every team has been way over expectation in their passing against Tampa Bay, avoiding the stout run defense that comes from uh, Adamic and Sue and, uh, and the interior there, which really cannot be stopped. And so the only players who have a lower yards per dropback than Jacoby Brissett this year are Justin Fields and Davis Mills. So Brissett has been that bad. And it's, I think this is something where he's been a 20 something ranked player, whether it comes to EPA or grade his entire career, he's just not a backup that, that gives you access to top end play. And that offensive line is really, really difficult. And he's someone who holds the ball. So he takes a bunch of sacks there. Um, now the Dolphins have given up a lot of late down conversions. So they're a team that's actually eighth in success rate per play as a defense good on the good side, but 25th in EPA per play. So that's something where they're probably going to get a little bit better. I don't think that's going to continue for the entire season. Uh, what's weird about that is, you know, last year they had the opposite situation. They were 11th in success rate and seventh in EPA per play because of the turnovers that they were able to generate. So this year they have not been able to stop third downs and they have not been able to generate the turnovers they did last year. So while they were probably a little bit overvalued that defensive performance last year, they're probably a little bit undervalued this year. And that's why I wouldn't go for, for Tampa Bay here because we have this at about 10 points. Tampa Bay is, depending upon how you look at it, you could say that they're the top team in the NFL still, even with these injuries. I think having additional time to work on the back end hopefully will help them there too. Okay, let's uh, hit Western and Southern here. The unexpected pots uh pots unexpected points podcast is sponsored by western and southern financial group while you focus on your roster moves western and southern helps advance your money moves buying your first home planning to start a family wondering how to make your money grow western and southern playbook of life insurance investment and retirement solutions helps you rest assured on game day team up to identify your needs and address your goals with a game plan built just for you get started at westernandsouthern.com pff Okay, so next game, and I'm also going to have a play on this game, is the Saints at the Washington football team. The Saints are a two-and-a-half-point favorite. Now, I'm going to go with the Saints here, two-and-a-half. Make sure you get this a two-and-a-half. Three, it's, it's, it's dust, right? Do not go for three on this here, since that's the most common uh, score differential in the NFL. So Brandon Scherf is out, so they lost him on the offensive line. Logan Thomas, I believe, is out. So there are some injury concerns for Washington. Now, I recommended, and we hit on – betting on the uh, football team last week. And one of the reasons for that is that they've been giving up a higher late down conversions than what you would expect. And that just continued right last week. So I still think there could be some undervalued aspects to this defense, but they're not generating pressure. And these miscommunications on the back end every week that the, the they continue to happen is another week where I become less confident that it's going to flip around. And I think, the undervaluedness of the Washington defense, I think, is is outweighed by the undervaluedness of the Saints offense. Now, they really need to open up the Saints offense. Now, I could understand you come out week one, you have a pretty dominating win against the Packers. You're one and oh, you're not really motivated to open things up against the Panthers. You lose that game. You're one and one. You're still like, well, we're one and one. We're in it. We're not going to open up the next game and you win, right? Uh, you win pretty, pretty easily against the Patriots. Then the following week, they don't open up. And this is the one that really cost them because it was the first close game of the season. They lose to the Giants, despite the fact that James Winston had a 90 passer rating, despite the fact that he was generating something like 
four EPA per play. That's excellent, excellent play in that game. Um, but their pass rate under expectation on the season is 9%. It's the lowest in the NFL right now. And if you look at what they're doing on second and long, which I think is the most important one to have a higher than expected pass rate, uh, their pass rate on second and long right now is 46%. No one else is below 50% on their pass rate on second and long. They're 21% under expectation on these second and long plays. They need to turn it over to Jameis. He's going to make some mistakes, but he's going to give you that high-end play. I mean, he had a very, very long touchdown last week that was taken away by a holding call, right? He is making the big plays. They're definitely afraid of third and long. And you need to say, it's okay if he throws an interception, if we're getting that high-end play at the same point in time down the field. And I have a feeling as we move to two and two here, Peyton is going to be more and more motivated to do that, to start to open things up. You're not going to get through this season and win games. The defense is good, not good enough to get there. The running game is good, not good enough to get there with just those two elements and not pushing through it all. So I think on the road here against a secondary that's been struggling against a defensive line that's supposed to be scary, that can't generate pressure, this is a time to let Jameis throw it some more. Could end up really, really badly, but guess what? You have to take that chance if you want to compete and win and get to the playoffs this year. I like them starting to move in that direction. I have the Saints as being more like a five or six point favorite in this one rather than two and a half. So my third play, third or four plays that I'm going to have this week, uh, is the Saints minus two and a half. Again, don't touch that at three. Minus two and a half. Uh, and when it comes to Heineke, I'll just say quickly, you know, his turnover-worthy play rate is twice his INT rate, so we'd be getting lucky there. Uh, I think the Saints team can get some turnovers from him just as easily as Jameis could throw some here. Uh, and they're also, you know, a team that's been okay, uh, but not great as far as when they're when they're running the ball. And Antonio Gibson, we'll see he's a little bit hampered. Um, if they turn over more to McKissick, I think that's a good thing, just low-value low plays that they're normally running with him. Okay, uh, Eagles, Panthers, three. This is an interesting one because I think this is another one where two teams might be a little bit undervalued. The Panthers kind of played poorly, but better than you would have hoped for in some ways offensively against the Cowboys. They just were never able to press any advantages they have, blitzing on defense also. And Philly, you know, what's interesting about this is they're fourth this year in pass rate over expectation. They're about 8% over expectation with Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts is sneaky good this year, you know, decent pass, passing grade, good EPA. Uh, he's like a top 10 sort of guy by those measures. They're opening things up for him. They're not hiding him on defense. It helped to play against the Kansas City defense that can't stop anyone last week, but he also had good performances earlier this year too. Now McCaffrey may play in this, and I think that's an important element. Uh, Chuba Hubbard was not involved in the passing game at all because he just can't do that. And McCaffrey's been a huge third down conversion player for uh, the Panthers. Now, CJ Henderson, he has an additional week there. We'll see how he plays. Uh, and on the back end, you know, they made the big trade of the week was trading for Stefan Gilmore, but Gilmore's on PUP. So he's not going to come back until week seven at the earliest. So he's not going to be there this week, not part of this game. Now, Darnold and Hertz have roughly equal EPA per play this season. Darnold is 12th, Hertz is 13th, but Hertz has a higher grade. He's 11th to Darnold's 18th. Um, I think Hertz is a little bit better, but 
I think the Panthers defense is better. The The Eagles defense has been having some issues as far as being able to stop someone. I know it was the Chiefs last week, but geez, that was just really, really, really bad. So I think three points is appropriate here. I'm not going to lean either way. I have an almost exactly three points in my numbers. And it's just going to be a fun game, I think, to see which one of those teams and which one of those quarterbacks can establish themselves as being for real with every week that passes. Uh, it'll be a big game working towards that moment. Okay, Bears at... The Vegas Raiders. Raiders are a five and a half point favorite. Uh, David Montgomery is out for a few weeks, so that'll be a change there, although I don't think it really affects anything. The Raiders have the worst running offense on EPA per play in the NFL. Hopefully they'll be moving away from that somewhat and not get too dissuaded to stay away from the Chicago Bears passing rush. The matchup here is, can the Raiders continue to generate pressure versus a very poor Bears the uh, offensive line last week, the bears were able to run the ball extremely effectively, use max protection, get fields to throw the ball. Although again, they only threw the ball 33% of plays. It was way, way under expectation. Even with the lead get field in good circumstances against an offense that couldn't move on the other side. I think a lot of things are, are pointing poorly towards the bears here. You have an offense that has been pretty good on the other side. So you're going to need some sacks or some turnovers. I think to stop, the Raiders offense, and then the Raiders defense, they are generating pressure. They continue to generate pressure right now. There's six in the NFL in the fast pressures, pressures that they've gotten in less than two and a half seconds. And I don't think this Bears offensive line is going to be able to stop them doing that. And then it's going to be what happens with Fields in these circumstances. He looks great with play action. You talk about in structure, out of structure. He looked fantastic within structure versus how Wilson looks awful within structure. He looks fantastic within structure, but are they going to be able to keep him in the type of structure that he needs to be successful, which is max protection, throw the ball down the field, big wide pockets, and lots of time to look down and assess things and get the ball down the field. We'll see what happens here. Uh, and another thing about the Raiders, you know, that was pretty good defensive performance against uh, a tough Chargers offense they held them under 50 percent down epa per play which you wouldn't have necessarily expected there so i think that they just struggled themselves offensively in that game i think the bears defense while generating pressure may not be as difficult in the back end as the uh chargers defense was and you know hopefully the raiders stop stop running it so much too okay um browns at the chargers i was talking about here the chargers two-point favorite i'll talk about this Brandon Staley video just quickly as an aside here. Why are people going crazy over Staley saying that just facts, right? He's just listing off facts that everyone knows. The running game gives you your quarterback a break. Great. Some quarterbacks need to break. Some don't though. I think uh, some play callers need to break. Some don't. Um, so yes, true. The running game adds physicality. Okay. It adds physicality, but again, like does physicality mean is it better? Can you optimize? Like, is more physicality always better? If you want to, physicality is good. Why not run the ball on every play? You know what's physical? Uh, goal line formation, uh, jumbo formation. That's physical. So why don't we just run, you know, jumbo formation, right? So I'm not saying that their physicality isn't important, but let's have some idea of how much is important or not, right? They're like, it's like you're arguing against these straw men of the fact that there's a recommendation that teams should never run the ball. I mean, Quote, unquote, analytics tells people run the ball more often on third and short and fourth and short that people don't do. Uh, so that's and it, it brings physicality. Great. Um, what else was the thing here? Uh, it forces a defense to 
have to beat blocks and make tackles. Yeah, obviously it's running the ball. Like you're just describing running the ball to us. Okay. Maybe it's like his, the way he said it and his, the feelings So like, I feel like a lot of people are reacting to this statement with feelings as opposed to actual diagnosis of what was being said. Yeah. You have to do running ball things, running the ball things against running the ball. We get it. Uh, but at the same time, if you're an offense, you can dictate to the defense whether you want to make things physical, whether you want to force them to do those things, right? And if you're a defense, yeah, you got to be ready for both of those things because the offense is going to dictate that to you. So I do think it's more of a defensive coach's thing to say, hey, we got to be ready for physicality. We got to be ready to beat blocks because the offense might force us to do that. When you have the choice on your own offense, then it's a whole different consideration on what's valuable or not. Um, and the last thing was opening things up for passing the ball. I mean, I think theoretically it does, right? But it's hard to really pinpoint that. And I'm going to make a quick analogy when it comes to the NBA and this whole talk of like the revolution, of the NBA and the, and the mid range jumper. So running the ball, I think there's a lot of similarities to the mid range jumper in the NBA. I think it's more valuable than the mid range jumper is in the NBA. But the thing is you don't have to run the ball to have the threat of running the ball. Okay. It goes with what the whole play action thing. And he agrees with this. Uh, Staley agrees with this. And that's why this became a topic is he agrees with the fact that you don't need to run the ball well for play action to be successful because there's a threat, right? Like if you're a defense, even if you're playing against a team that passed the ball 90% of the time, right? You can't just line up in a formation where let's say you just have guys on the end rushing and no one in the middle, um, leave the middle completely open. Don't have a middle linebacker following up, have nothing there. Well, you know what? That team, will run the ball against you, right? There's still the threat of the running ball. The threat of running the ball is always there. The threat of the mid-range jumper is always there. You're not going to see a defense in the NBA look at a team that shoots, let's say they only shoot 5% of their shots are mid-range jumpers. Let's say it's smaller. Say 2% of their shots are mid-range, 1% of their shots are mid-range jumpers. A defense is not going to say, you know what? When you have the ball 15 feet from the basket, I'm not going to guard you. I'm going to give you a wide open 15 foot jumper because you know what? That team that doesn't take mid-range jumpers, if you give them a wide open 15 foot jumper, they are going to take it and make it at a high enough level and an efficient enough level to make it worth it. Same thing with running the ball. Okay. There is no circumstance under which a team will pass so much that the defense will adjust so much that the, they won't have a threat of still running the ball and they still have to be an adjustment for that, okay? This whole theoretical thing of what if a team threw the ball every play is not a real thing. There is always a threat of running the ball or not, whether or not a team actually runs the ball, right? Because what you have done does not dictate what you will do in the future. There is still always going to be that threat. So whether that threat means you'll do it 5% of the time versus uh, 30% of the time, that will change the defense slightly. But fundamentally, the defense has not changed. Fundamentally, even if you only do it 5% of the time, the defense has to be prepared for it, right? Because they know that you will adjust off of that. And you will be so, you'll be gaining so much value on that, you'll have to do something. So that's what we're talking about here. 5% of the time versus 50% of the time. Not some theoretical world where you're never running the ball and the defense can can act as if there is never going to be a threat of running the ball in the future. It's a silly way to think. It's a silly way to frame things. It's a silly straw man to talk about. And anyone 
who's talking in that way, in my opinion, is not having a serious discussion here. So I'm not blaming Staley for this because he's just talking normal coach speak, but the way that people are reacting to this coach speak is so over the top, it you know borderline ridiculous on, on what's going on there. Now to this game, after that huge preamble there on the Staley video, which has been annoying me. Uh, my numbers have a slight lean on Cleveland here as a two-point underdog, but Baker's injury complicates things a bit. I don't know the partially torn labrum on his left shoulder, how much that's really affecting his play. He has gone from 11 EPA in his first game down to seven, down to zero, negative one against the Bears, down to negative 11 against um, Minnesota. So it has kind of strong correlation with when that that injury happened, right? Um so that complicates things a lot for this game. Now, the Browns have had this insane rushing efficiency this year. Uh, this is not including fumbles, which they had. They did have a fumble in the first game. But they've been averaging point, because I take out, the, take out that stuff because it's pretty random. So they've been averaging 0.2 EPA per play, right? That's only lower than four different dropback offenses in the NFL. They're basically like a top five passing offense running the ball, which is incredible. Um, and their success rate is not as high. Like, I think the Cowboys have the top success rate. So it's probably going to regress some, even though I think they do have some fundamental things on how well they're able to, to run the ball. Now, the Chargers offense, it seems like a sustainable offense, but if you look at overall, the Chargers team, they benefited from a ton of turnovers and third down conversions, okay? The Chargers as a team, they have gained 20 points off of turnovers, the net 20 points off of turnovers, whereas the Browns have lost a net 17 points off of turnovers this year. And the Browns defense has only generated 4.7 EPA on turnovers versus the Chargers defense has generated 18 EPA on turnovers. So those a lot of those things that are pointing towards the Browns maybe being a bit better and the Chargers, despite all the hype, maybe not being as good. Uh, what's interesting here is contrasting their early and late down EPA between these different quarterbacks. Baker right now is one of the top guys in the NFL on early downs, first and second down, 0.3 EPA per play. Herbert, 0.13 EPA per play on early downs. Late down, so on third and fourth down, Baker, 0.06 EPA. So that's, that's, that's flat, not good. Herbert, 0.59, so almost 0.6 EPA. So huge, one of the top guys in the league. So that's really a contrast there. Is Herbert going to regress? Which way will he regress on there? Can Baker get a little bit better on late downs? He's been taking these sacks on fourth downs that have been total killers, killers the last couple of weeks. And hopefully he'll start doing that. Um, if it wasn't for this Baker injury, I think I would have a play on Cleveland. If you want to go for it, uh, go ahead. I'm going to I'm gonna lean back. Uh, plus three points would be nice too, instead of a uh, two-point line on this one. Um, okay, I'm going to hit the last ad here for the day, and that is for our friends at Manscaped. It's football season, and you know what that means? It means we're going for two here with sponsors of today's show, Manscaped. I guess that's a reference to your two testicles uh blitzing through hairs has never been easier and it's time you join the two million men worldwide who trust manscaped by using code pff at manscaped.com for 20 percent off and free shipping it's three and out the window with all other trimmers now go tame that wildcat offense okay the brand new lawnmower 4.0 is here to take your defense to the next level this fourth generation trimmer features cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 has 7,000 RPM motor, a new multifunction on off switch, and gives you the ability to turn a 400K LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave. 
is really prepared for every circumstance here and is waterproof. So, you know, rain, sleet, or snow, don't let that get in the way of your manscaping. Um, there's no 15 yard clip <laughs> penalty for clipping, but there's probably a penalty for unnecessary roughness, I would say on this one. Uh, but anyway, get 20% off and free shipping with code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com.com. Use promo code PFF. Okay, I'm not even reading this last line. All right, so let's go on to the last handful of games here. Only have a few left, luckily. And Giants, Dallas. So Dallas, as I mentioned earlier, huge offensive performance for them last week. Dak is just doing everything correctly. The one thing you got to worry about a little bit with them is defensively. And just generally, they have netted 32 EPA in turnovers this season. If you combine the, the differences in what they've, the other offenses have lost versus what their defense has generated. That is so huge. That's before, by far the most in the NFL. So I think there's a little regression there, especially defensively. They're, again, number one in the NFL for how many um, turnovers they've gotten. Because neither team is really generating much pressure here. The Giants and the Cowboys are 27th in, in fast pressures. So pressure's under two and a half seconds. So the defense hasn't been great. They've been getting all these turnovers, right? Um, but the Cowboys have done a much better job protecting Dak than the Giants have done protecting uh, Danny Dimes. Now, Daniel Jones has done well as his grading. He's making great throws, but he still always has the potential for a sack fumble. So that'll be interesting if we can if they can stay away from that here. Uh, this would lean, I'd lean a little bit giants on this because seven points is a lot, but not enough to play. Uh, you know, it's kind of wild though, the day that, uh, dimes does have the better passing grade 86.9. Wow. Versus a 76 for Dak. And he's even slightly better at EPA per play, which is something I wouldn't have suspected, uh, 0.16 versus 0.13. So there's actually been a net negative for Dak this year, scrambling and running the ball EPA. And Daniel Jones, because of his long runs, is at 5.5 EPA. Dak was one of the guys where he didn't run a ton in the past, but he's always been able to generate some highly valuable design runs in particular. And he's not doing this this year. So that is a little bit of a limiting factor for their offense. But they're running the ball so well, I don't think it matters. So I think this is close. If you wanted to go with the Giants here, I would lean towards that. But either way, seven points is seven points. Uh, Buffalo, Kansas City, three points to Kansas City. Uh, number one offense versus the number one defense. What's interesting here as far as defense's adjustments are concerned. Uh, so Timo Risque at our research and development group, he looks at all the different defensive performances and he makes an adjustment based upon their actual performance, what they've done versus their predicted performance going forward. So the defensive adjustments are just enormous. Like the Bills defense has been half a point per drop back better than any other defense in the league to this point. When you adjust that down, you regress that to what you should expect going forward. It goes to less than 0.1. It's actually 0.075 better right? And the KC defense, which is observed, has been awful, awful, awful. When you regress that down, they are 0.05 EPA worse. So you combine those together, it's about 0.12 EPA difference in defensively here, which is okay, which is you know significant. It's material, but still, it's like the difference between the best quarterback in the NFL and the fifth best quarterback in the NFL, as opposed to the best defense in the league and the worst defense in the league. It just shows while there is a material difference between these two defenses, best and worst against the pass, it is nowhere close. It is one-tenth of the difference. Well, not one-tenth, one-fifth of the difference than it would be between the best passing attack and the worst passing attack in the, in the NFL. Uh, there's a huge, huge difference, multiple times difference here. Um, 
no no play on this one. I think three points is exactly perfect. And also three points should be a wake-up call to people who have Kansas City in the power rankings, not at least in the top three, right? I mean, they're getting three points in a league where we haven't seen much home field advantage at all against the Bills, who a lot of people have rated above them in power rankings. It shows that they're, you know, they're a little bit better team than the Bills right now. Uh, although it's close. Um, Josh Allen, I mentioned before, he's been struggling a bit. So hopefully this is a get right game for, for him after having one of those against the red, uh, the red, I said the Redskins again, against the Washington football team. Okay. Let's get to Monday night. Last game here. Uh, Colts at Ravens minus seven slight lean towards the Colts here, but again, not quite playable. We're really gonna have to see from this Ravens offense, whether they can turn things around. They've not been running the ball well at all, but Lamar has his highest yards per attempt, his highest yards per drop back. When you net out scrambles by far right now, he's playing at the highest level that we've seen minus the MVP season. As far as his passing efficiency, will that continue? I don't know. I mean, I've seen some people crowing about it and yeah, it's great that he's doing this, but how often do we see a fourth year where someone establishes a new plateau? A lot of these plays are being made down the field and which is great because I think they need those big plays and there's been drops. So it could have been even more plays down the field. Again, it's not necessarily a chain moving, sustaining offense when they are running the ball poorly this year. They're a mid-tier running team where they're normally first in efficiency and head and shoulders above everyone else. If this was seven and a half points rather than seven points, I think I'd take the Colts. Uh, despite the Colts have had a massive turnover advantage this year, that's really kept them in it. Um, and what's interesting about the Baltimore offense too, is they're even passing the ball more often. It's not just that Lamar has been more efficient, right? Their pass rate versus expectation is only 1% under expectation. Whereas in the previous two years, they were 8% under expectation 30th uh, last year. And they were 5.2% even during his, which was 29th, 5.2% in his MVP season where he was passing the ball extremely well. So can they keep it up? Can they continue to pass the ball? Well, we saw a very effective Colts defense against Jacoby Brissett, who stinks uh, last week, but can that Colts defense continue well and, you know, maybe generate some turnovers, which is how they've been winning this year. Uh, I think it's a fairly priced game, though. So I'm not going to add that to the plays this week. Oh, you know what? I just realized I skipped a game here. I was wondering how I skipped it because this is another one of my plays. So last play. I skipped it here. This is one of my favorites, too. Uh, 49ers at Cardinals. Uh, the Cardinals are five and a half point favorites. It looks like it's going to be Trey Lance. Um, you know, the look ahead line on this was only two and a half points has gone up to five and a half. I mean, some of that is the product is just how the teams looked on Sunday. Uh, part of that may be the injury. I think it's fair to assume that the 49ers offense is going to be worse with Trey Lance. I know everyone wants to crown him, but I think it is fair to think that. I mean, the 49ers are still sixth in drop back yards EPA per play, even though everyone thinks Jimmy G stinks, right? Um, okay. So let's, but the play here actually is the 49ers because I think that's too much. Uh, I have it more like two and a half, three points, even with Trey Lance in there. So let's look at the Cardinals this year. You know, they got lucky in some games. They've netted about 15 EPA off of turnovers. Uh, the 49ers have gone unlucky. They've lost their net. If you look at turnovers, they've lost about 16 EPA. Um, the Cardinals have converted eight more late down on offense than expected second in the NFL. Again, this is a team that was not doing that consistently before. Um, so we'll have to look to see whether that has stickiness so far this year. Although I do think Kyler's playing a lot better as I explained earlier this week. Now the 49ers, as I mentioned in my game grades, they were better than Seahawks last week. Uh, the Cardinals weren't 
you know, extremely better than the Rams, even though they beat them, I think by 17 points and they should have lost that game to Minnesota. They were the worst team in that game also that they lost to Minnesota. So I think the, the upside you're going to get running the ball with Lance and opening that up and having a whole week to scheme, I think is going to outweigh that the San Francisco defense has actually been better than some people think, despite the fact that they've had some injuries that have held them down. They didn't generate as much pressure, especially against San Francisco, against uh, green Bay, as you would have liked. So five and a half is just too many points. It's getting over the key three. It's way over the three. It doesn't get to six, which would be nice, but five and a half is way too much points. So that is going to be my last play of the week is San Francisco plus five and a half. So just to wrap up Houston plus nine, against the the uh patriots detroit plus nine and a half that's a lot of points i know they have injuries against minnesota uh new orleans minus two and a half um against washington and san francisco plus five and a half okay that's it for me guys thanks for tuning in to listen to this whole thing uh rate and review the pod i hope you enjoyed the breakdown at the beginning of this i'll be coming back at you at tuesday with a breakdown of everything that happened this weekend um enjoy this weekend of football especially east coasters who get that 9 a.m start all right talk with you all later thanks